Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Dale Stenberg and I are delighted today to be joined a second time by Dr. Michael Ward, Professor of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And we're here to today to discuss his uh, a book that he was just, I think, on our last interview, I think you had just uh, submitted this manuscript maybe that very day, that morning, uh, for the book that we're discussing now, After Humanity, uh, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And I have to say, it was sort of interesting, maybe just getting right, going right out of the gate, uh, 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 Dr. Ward. I've probably read The Abolition of Man. I think this was my third time to read it. I read it just before I, I dipped into your book. Uh, and maybe I read it in my late teens and had a typical late teen reaction to it. There's some interesting things here, yay. Uh, but it may be in my late 20s or early 30s, I think I, I dipped into it again and was just astounded with how much exists in a, densely in 80 pages. Yes. And it's been almost a decade, perhaps, since I've read it. So this was my third time. And this time, I, I you know, I, I've read a bunch of C.S. Lewis between now and then. I'm approaching the abolition of man this time. Uh, and it seemed to me that it was so dense that there's so much in these 80 pages in such a deceptively elegant form that wouldn't it be nice if somebody had a critical apparatus yeah. to unveil to everybody everything that's here. And then lo and behold, <laughs> here is this book, After Humanity, a, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. So I have to say, I had a, the sensation of realizing how much this book was needed after reading The Abolition of Man again. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, maybe that's a segue to saying what was your maybe what was the kind of particular motivation to this is a peculiar book because uh, uh, it's a it's sort of a, one might say a glorified introduction to the themes and context of abolition of man but then the substance of it is a kind of gloss on all of the little bits in abolition of man what's the if you could put it in your words what's the motivation for you know produce giving that I find it automatically valuable but how would you describe your own motivation for writing it? Well, principally uh, the motivation of a teacher, because I've, you know, I've been teaching Lewis's works to students now since uh, the early 90s. And uh, mm. I don't always teach The Abolition of Man, but when I do teach it, I've, I've noticed that students find it difficult. And mm. I can sympathize with them because I remember finding it difficult when I first tried it. And indeed, to a certain extent, I find it difficult still because yeah. <laughs> I'm not a philosopher. I, I'm not a trained philosopher. I've never studied philosophy. I've never taught philosophy as such. Um, and so I can sympathize with these difficulties. It is a very dense book. So that's one motivation, just trying to clarify matters and, and make it more accessible to, to my immediate students and, of course, to general readers um, after that. Um, but also I, it's... Another motivation is that The Abolition of Man is an extremely important work in understanding C.S. Lewis as a whole. It's not mm. just it itself that deserves to be better understood. C.S. Lewis himself will be better understood if we grapple successfully with The Abolition of Man. Lewis himself described it as almost my favorite among my works. Mm. And when I've you know, pressed into it and, and begun to trace its links with his other writings, I can see why Lewis would say that because it is, well, it has been described, I think accurately by some scholars as a, as a linchpin of all Lewis's works. 
and as his editor biographer Walter Hooper described it as an all but indispensable introduction to the entire corpus of Louisiana. So mm. it's, it's a kind of master key in a way that unlocks so much of the rest of Lewis's output. Mm. Yeah, and, and that makes it the 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 tone of it fascinating because it, it, it reveals perhaps that the under if, as a portal to Lewis's whole writing, one of the things that distinguishes it. And I think you mentioned this in the, in your book is that it's one of Lewis's more, uh, uh, um, somber works almost he's uh it's very serious the kind of jolly lewis is still there but it ends with a a, a little bit of a, a a note of of well yeah just seriousness uh and and it's interesting that that, that that's perhaps indicative of a larger note of seriousness underneath Lewis's jolly <laughs> in the whole of his corpus which is you know he deploys these things for serious ends. dale i didn't mean to cut you off uh uh no 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 i was i was gonna say um Maybe what we could do is sort of take uh, each section of the book and talk about that. So <clears throat> of the abolition of man. And one thing I did want to add to Joe's introduction about uh, the usefulness of the book, it's also very useful for those of us that are not as literate as Lewis. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Lewis assumes he assumes of a letter, uh, a level of literacy that the reader is already conversant with, which is just to say um, he assumes that we have a wide exposure to the Western tradition of great books and philosophy and philosophical categories. <clears throat> and he's writing it at a time that, you know, the, the title abolition of man uh, and then your title title after humanity that sort of assumes that his prophetic utterances in the book are sort of coming to fruition in modernity. We seem to be in that after phase. Um, and part of that is just not having a, a good grounding in our tradition and keeping in line with the thinkers that have come before us. And we don't feel any sort of uh, responsibility to the people that are going to come after us, uh, which is really the whole point of the Tao. Uh, so before we get into that, maybe maybe it would be helpful, Dr. Ward, if you give us like a 30,000 foot view of what Lewis is doing in Abolition of Man, and then we'll parachute down into um, the, his first part of the book in the way that you give commentary on some of the things he says. From 30,000 feet, the book is about two things. It's, it's a defense of the objectivity of value. And it's a forecast or a prediction of what will happen to us if we overthrow our belief in the objectivity of value. So on the one hand, it's it's positive. It's a, it is a defense. It's got something positive to offer, namely traditional morality, if you want to call it that. So Lewis uses other terms and we can come on to that in a moment. Um, but possibly more than a defense, it is this um, Jeremiah, really, it's a, it's a dystopian picture that he's painting of, of where we are headed in our modern subjectivist uh, contemporary culture. Mm. And it, it doesn't make for, you know, very comfortable reading because it, you know, Lewis is predicting that we are basically annihilating ourselves as human beings. That's why his book is called The Abolition of Man. Mm. Um, and because it's a purely philosophical work, 
It's not a theological work. It's not a work of Christian apologetics as such. Um, he, he's content to leave it there on a very bleak note. This is where we are headed. And so he's kind of sounding the alarm. And he's not, he's not getting so far as offering a, a Christian uh, solution to the problem that he's raising. He's just wanting to say and get it well established fixed in our minds that this is indeed where we are headed and nobody can like it no nobody can want us to get there whether they're christians or not um but we can come on to that in a moment about about who his precise audience and he's using uh, what he calls the green book as a as a sort of jumping off point to get into his larger point um, so Joe and I have been uh, talking about uh, your book and Abolition of Man. Um, we were on the uh, Zoom last night for hours, and then we talked uh, this morning for a while. Uh, and there's just so much to unpack. So we'll try to economize our conversation um, to be more efficient. So Lewis was an educator. And he's looking at the offerings of English uh, education for people in lower schools, right? Uh, he is concerned about children. And I think that this really was a piece, and maybe you can clarify if you don't think that this was part of the motivation. You've got the meta mo motivation where between two, uh, we've got the, the world at war. He sees the impending doom coming with subjectivists. He sees the rise of Hitler and, and uh, uh, the rest of the world powers at that time and power and might makes right. It was the prevailing sort of philosophy motivating these uh, actors. But he was also very concerned about the education of children. And it seems like he looked at the green book as a uh, Turkish delight handed to Edmund by the white witch, uh, a sort of temptuous luring of a young mind into the carriage that would take them into prison and ultimately deform the person down into a subhuman species. Mm. And he does a good job of not attributing ill motives to uh, the authors of the book, but he nevertheless sees it as very dangerous. So <clears throat> when we talk about uh, the 30,000 view of Lewis sort of battling subjectivism, he gives us the famous story about the waterfall that the Green Book uses, and somebody defines the waterfall as sublime. And the Green Book says, we shouldn't talk this way because that's just to say how you feel about the waterfall. It's not to say anything about the waterfall. And uh, Lewis sort of picks up and goes from there. So what is uh, Lewis trying to do rhetorically and philosophically uh, by shedding light on this thing that the, that the Green Book is drawing children towards? And why did he see it as insidious? The Green Book is the title Lewis gives to uh, a textbook which was actually entitled uh, The Control of Language. And right. he, he gives the authors pseudonyms. He calls them Gaius and Titius, whereas right. in reality they were Alec King and Martin Ketley. Um, so Lewis opens with this discussion in the Green Book, as he calls it, uh, of, of, the, of the waterfall episode where the romantic poet Coleridge overhears other tourists describing the waterfall and um, 
Yes, is it best to call this waterfall sublime or is it merely pretty? And of course, one could debate the precise application of those terms without becoming a subjectivist. Um, but the whole point, the whole thrust of, of the presentation of the authors of the Green Book about this episode is that either sublime or pretty, it doesn't matter. N neither term um, mm. reveals anything objectively true about the waterfall. It's purely a subjective projection from the speaker. And so pretty is no better a term, no worse a term than sublime. It's just, in a sense, irrelevant. It's only telling us things about the internal state of the speaker, not about the reality that they're observing. And this episode is analysed by Gaius and Titius in a book which is supposedly about English composition and the study of literature. Um, it's not supposed to be about advancing a case for subject for subjectivism. And this is right. one of the things that really gets Lewis's goat, that <laughs> they're smuggling in this philosophy um, in a work which is supposed to be about something else. And that would be a bit bad, even if the philosophy was not so deleterious. But because it's a very damaging kind of mistaken philosophy, um, it's, it's doubly mischievous and regrettable. And so Lewis's sort of hackles rise um, when he reads this and he, he uses it as a kind of rhetorical springboard into his larger case against subjectivism. Um, I think partly because you know, everybody can remember what it was like to read boring textbooks at school. Yes. <laughs> and so, it's, you know, it's a kind of easy target from that point of view. We would all like to you know, stick it to some of these. Brief when we were at school. Um, but also it's rhetorically effective in that, you know, all adults, or hopefully all adults want to protect children and want to see children educated mm. properly. Um, they may have to, you know, tackle difficult matters, but those difficult matters should be presented with care and honestly, straightforwardly. And so one of the things that Lewis particularly objects to in the Green Book is that it's kind of intellectually dishonest. It, there's some sort of crime in it, he says. It's not just erroneous, it's sort of criminal at the intellectual level. Um, yeah. That there's a kind of subterfuge going on which he, he just thinks is a convenient way of getting into his larger case about subjectivism. But we shouldn't spend too much time on the Green Book itself. It really yes. is a, a rhetorical device, a kind of throat clearing device, a way of capturing uh, the reader's attention um, with, a, with an easy to understand example. Yeah. And then he's off into his larger case. One of the things that really surprised me in this reading is he he goes on into the to the second section because he's 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 yeah, exactly he's using this as a sort of springboard um, and he goes on to talk about the way you know the criticism of this way of describing things isn't just that there's a philosophical way to argue against it there is a philosophical argument against it but there's also something hubristic about not recognizing that nobody's ever described it this way you're acting like uh, the tradition that would describe this waterfall this way is a tradition that you can just jump out a stream you can, a, a human descriptive tradition uh, an interpretive tradition you can just jump outside of but what surprised me in part two this time you know reading it at 39 as opposed you know when i proposed when i last read it 
uh, is that Lewis does have an account of the, the way he uses Tao. Uh, you know, I tend to kind of substitute natural law or something like that. And, and there, and there's a, a rough correspondence there. And he even mentions natural law or practical reason. Uh, but he also does mention the the idea that the Tao can change. And I found that a very fascinating. In in, in part two, he has this notion that uh, uh, he he's actually not telling everybody you can't uh, sort of modify what human tradition and custom looks like within the tradition, but it can only come appropriately from within the Tao itself. Sort of, that's where he says, you know, only from within the Tao can the Tao be, you know, whatever. And and in the name of probably a, a sort of peripheral axiom in the name of a deeper axiom, uh, sort of resolving itself. And this is something I see in, in so much of Lewis Corpus that it's, you know, the discarded image uh, of course, parts of this aren't technically true, but the discarded image is a crucial still for us. And you see this in, you know, his, in that hideous strength, uh, he doesn't treat Merlin as sinister for having his moral instincts about, you know, killing the servant, you know, <laughs> right? Lewis really does imagine Merlin is still in the Tao. He's just from a, a moment in time where a connection to the Tao was inflected a bit differently and sort of out of place. But that whole element of it was fascinating to me that Lewis is very sensitive as a natural law thinker uh, uh, and in his argument here to the to the idea that you don't really access natural law sort of just directly and get the pure distillate you it, it's always inflected through a historical condition so that the objective and the subjective are kind of united in a real hu i mean the human life just is the union of these and he's assuring in a sense and i wonder if you, what you think he's almost assuring a modern reader i'm not saying that moral trajectory cannot be corrected. Of course it can be corrected. But if you just jump outside the thing, then you're, well, you're almost certainly just gonna get nowhere. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, it's a, uh, uh, I, I'm fascinated by that play with natural law and I'm kind of curious, yeah. Well, first of all, for, you, for your listeners who aren't familiar with the abolition of man, we should explain what we mean by the Tao, or rather what yes. is by the Tao. We haven't explained that term yet, but it's a, a Chinese term. It's taken from Confucian philosophy. Uh, we pronounce it Tao, it's T-A-O. Um, and Lewis chooses this term from Eastern thought um, in large part to emphasize the fact that the thing he's arguing for is universal. This is this is humanity's ethical inheritance that yes. comes all human beings, regardless of where they find themselves, either on the globe or in the in the in the in the in the chapters of history, um, because this awareness of the objectivity of moral value is, you know, that, that's just a kind of polysyllabic way of talking about good and evil, right and wrong, or you know, to put it more bluntly and perhaps in more obviously Christian terms, the conscience. Yeah. All human beings have been invested with this awareness of right and wrong by their creator. And as a result, this is a, this is a good baseline for a description of what, what it is to be genuinely human. Um, so he uses the term the Tao to, to wrong foot those who, who will assume that he's making a purely um, Western and Christian case 
or that he's merely defending what everybody will already know to be natural law. Um, he, he's doing something a little bit different from that, actually. He, he's just he's wanting to talk about uh, a kind of moral ecology that we all breathe, an, an, an ethical atmosphere that we inhabit by virtue of being of belonging to this species. And we can't get out of it. We may pretend that we can get out of it, but we never really do because it's inescapable. It's it's fundamental. It's it's paradigmatic to our to our nature as human beings. And so um, when it comes to your the question you were raising there, Joseph, about possible developments from within this moral ecology, um, yes, of course, there can be developments. Uh, the, the classic example is is the advance from the silver rule to the golden rule. Mm. You know, the silver rule is do not do to others as as you would not have them do unto you. That's the silver rule, and the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You mm. know, from a negative to a positive, that's a, a moral advance. You might mm. say that's that's a a crystallization of a of a moral truth. But it's clearly, you know, the latter step is clearly compatible with the former step and is indeed a, a natural outgrowth of it. Mm. And if you don't see that, 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 that one ought to lead to the other, then, then you're not really um, morally literate. Mm. And there are other ways in which, you know, the Tao can be refined and improved and, and so on and so forth. But, but all these advances must happen from within it and they must be organic. Right. They must be natural. Um, they must be, you know, like the growth of a tree from acorn to oak, or like the, the growth right. of a human person from baby to adult. Um, moral maturity can be increasingly arrived at. It, it will never be finally arrived at because uh, to, to put an end to moral development would be to put an end to history. Because mm. Right. Very, by the very fact that history is going on and new situations are developing and, and new perceptions are being arrived at, inevitably, moral understandings will be increasingly refined. You know, the fine tunings may be very, 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 very fine the further right. you go on, but nonetheless, at least in principle, they can be, continue to be made. Yeah. Right. It's interesting the way that, uh, so he ends that first chapter, Men Without Chess, with the famous line that everybody quotes on social media, right? Mm. <clears throat> um, you know, we uh, bid the guildings, uh, we, we castrate the guildings and, and, uh, and bid them they're doing. Um, but it's interesting, the tripartite division that uh, Lewis makes with man, and it's not a theological argument. He's not saying this is how we theologically sort of carve up man. He really is getting at like the lower animal appetites and reason come together in the chest, the seed of your emotions. And this is what uh, the, the authors of the green book are sort of trying to get rid of. And in a twist of irony, it really is that they are trying to prevent subjectivism from taking over while at the same time playing into, into the hands of the subjectivist philosophy, precisely because they deny the seat which is uh, sentimental, uh, sentimentality and emotion 
to sort of uh, <clears throat> synthesize the reason and the animal instinct. So it's in the heart, it's in the chest um, that we need to um, sort of become a whole person. That's where the, whole, the holistic vision of a person is, is this marriage between the stomach and the, and the head in the chest. What I find interesting, so like um, properly ordered loves, uh, I'm starting a classical Christian school here in Central Florida, and that's our motto, Ordinas Amores. Um, and one thing that I tell the parents is what we're going to teach your kid when they come to our school is how to love that which is lovely and hate that which ought to be hated. And that's really what Lewis is saying. Uh, the whole thrust of that first chapter is to say there are things which are intrinsically lovely, which do pull on our emotions and our sentimentality, and that when we use words to describe that thing that should be uh, that elicits out of us a sense in an all of the lovely, then we are giving it justice. We are we are giving it due. Um, explanation on the way that God has designed that thing to to affect us in our reason, but also in our animal instincts and find a synthesis in the chest. So uh, if if that's true, then when we're talking about sort of changing the Tao, we're not saying that we bring everyone brings to uh, bear on the natural order of things their own subjective analysis of either the worthiness of this thing to be called lovely or the unworthy and the unworthiness of this thing to be called uh, ugly, but that it just is inside of the thing and to to move into a description of the Tao is almost impossible because it's not that you can reduce the Tao to a proposition, it's that the Tao actually elicits something out of you, right? And that's the telos of that particular thing. You see a butterfly, you see a caterpillar go into its cocoon and emerge as a butterfly. All you can do is give it its proper respect. I, I wonder, this is sort of an abstract question, Dr. Ward, but I wonder in the modern age, how are, do you think that we're missing that to a certain extent? And if we are, I mean, I almost want to say that's not even worthy of question to be asked because obviously I think we're missing it in big chunks. But if that is a phenomenon of the modern age to sort of question or balk at the idea that something is intrinsically lovely and we can attribute value to that thing via language, uh, or if we don't love that which is lovely, but we uh, venerate that which is unlovely, what has given rise to this? So if he was a prophet sort of speaking into the future, is it really because we've sort of given up the objective understanding of value and we've taken to ourselves a uh, godlike uh, posture towards nature where we can make it malleable and fit whatever our, our imagination comes up with? or? I know that's, I'm sorry, I, I, I tend to ask these questions, uh, but I think it's worthy of an answer, so. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, the very last thing you said uh, was interesting to me um, because it connects with, with the fictional counterpart to the abolition of man, namely that hideous strength, where you were saying um, we'll we can just make things up according to our own will. We can 
make it up ourselves. Um, and that puts me in mind of the, the, men, the men of the Tower of Babel who want to make a name for themselves by building a tower to the heavens, by making themselves godlike, as it were. Um, and of course, that hideous strength, the third novel in Lewis's Ransom trilogy, which is the fictional counterpart to the abolition of man. Right. That very phrase, that hideous strength, is derived from a poem about the Tower of Babel. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's a kind of um, usurpation of, of moral foundations. Uh, subjectivism that is um that you you take it upon yourself to determine uh a priori effectively what is good and what is evil uh, it's it's just a product of your will it's a product of your preference your whim your appetite your digestion the state of the weather random association of ideas uh, heredity all these non-rational or irrational causes are leading you to say, I think that's good and not that. Whereas in a traditional human understanding of, of what is good and evil, we, we don't make it up, we discover it. Right and wrong are not things that we invent, we unearth them as, as we grow into our humanity. Um, this is what it means to be a, a well-adjusted, well-developed um, human being. Mm. And so, yes, hence the, the physical model that Lewis gives of the chest um, being the liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man, the, the yeah. head and the belly are united in the chest, which is the, the fundamentally human organ, as it were, because from the from the sternum down where we have where appetites and senses and emotions and passions and in that respect we're like the animals from the neck up we're rational and to that extent we're like the angels mm. or possibly like the demons um, mm. combine the angelic and the animal in the chest and you have the anthropological this is because we, you know, one of the classic definitions of the human being is a rational animal. Right. Yeah. And we and, you know, one of the important points in Lewis's argument is, is that we shouldn't be ashamed of our animality. Right. Um, we have passions. Yes, we have senses. We have sentiments. And those are good. Yeah. But yep. they, they yep. are good when they are ordered and disciplined, when they become just sentiments, when they become civilized sentiments regular and stable emotions and so we're not just at the mercy of our passions neither are we squelching our passions by an over emphasis upon the head upon the rational you know the cerebral we are integrated we can feel but we can also understand we can know and we can sense and this is what it means to be a, ba a balanced and integrated human being yeah, this this is where his emphasis. I think he he has this fascinating structure uh, throughout the book, uh, where he compares the power of some men over other men, and he does this in in several ways. But one of the 
one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, precisely because of the way humans learn and how we are and what it, in, in the mode in which God is sort of established us to be connected to the Tao, inflected through a community, um, the radical move, and this is actually, you know, kind of similar to almost a Burkean critique of, you know, just radicalism as a sort, like it, the lack of wisdom in just radically moving outside of the tradition is that you lose what tradition, a moral ecology inflected through a tradition, if you will, gives you. Um, uh, and what Lewis is really sensitive about, sensitive to, I think, in a way that is often missed in, in some critiques, is the way in which that's always uh, the establishment of a new subservience. You're not actually getting free. What really goes on outside the Tao is that some men's vision of the good is actually reigning over some, is actually calling the shots for some other men. Uh, and that's true with posterity. That's true. And he shows it in all these ways. But even when you, then when you get down to the man, which part of that some man is ruling other men? Is it the head of that man? Well, no, it's actually just the appetites of some man, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, by mediated through cultural influence, effectively controlling other men. And so you actually wind up belonging to a much less thick, as it were, in a much less wise tradition of sorts. <laughs> the world for the masses is still mostly mediated by authority and influence. Uh, yes. uh, but in this case, uh, for a man who's in himself irrational, and that's the kind of image of the demonic consciousness that then you see inflected through the nice in, a, uh, in that hideous strength. And a, a parallel to that that I think of is... Um, I, I have four children and my wife and I are raising a daughter uh, and, you know, we're fairly modern people, you know, it's fine if she grows up and be an astronaut, we're fine. With, you know, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, but it struck me as I was thinking of the, the, uh, you know, just television shows or the stories that I see available to her as a young girl. And it struck me how, how, um, I almost never see depictions of motherhood uh, in media for young girls to look at and say, oh, isn't that cool to be a mom? And that doesn't mean I don't want girls to grow up and be astronauts, but nevertheless, this sort of this sort of depiction of a mother for to inspire young girls, I thought to myself, well, that's that there's there's the abolition of man. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a there the, the power defining what the good and the true and the beautiful is by means of media for children has decided to some extent at some place that people with power are actually deciding we don't actually want to make stories <laughs> that tell little girls this is what's actually good for them. We, you know, we will only give these messages, you know, um, uh, that's a little bit of a, a long-winded way of, of saying things, but it, it's uh, it nevertheless inspired that that some men, other men structure I find really, really fascinating in Lewis. And I think a very good way for most people to see how the abolition of man is actually accomplished in the human consciousness. Because it's almost a, the abolition of man is almost an atrophy of human faculty where you don't realize what you've lost. Motherhood, uh, you could think you've lost nothing in fact. <laughs> uh, and gained uh, but something it, actually. But it's, yeah, yeah, and even gained something, exactly. But, it, but, it, but it, it can only be something you tell yourself by virtue of something atrophying in you. And Lewis is almost trying to, it seems to me like wizard charm that piece of you awake <laughs> to feel again. Uh, uh, is that a decent reading of what he's doing with the 
kind of the some men, other men thing. I, I think that's a, and he, it's one of the very few quotes in the book actually that is explicitly quoted in that hideous strength uh, is uh, he puts it in the mouth of one of the early, the character gets murdered. Uh, 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 he has, you know, he uses this line from abolition of man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when we try to step outside the Tao, um, we, we render ourselves less than human. Um, and as a result, we begin to tyrannize other people with our own misshapen understanding of the Tao. Yeah. And I mean, I, I totally agree with you, Joseph, about the lack of healthy depictions, positive depictions of motherhood. I would only supplement it by saying that there are almost no healthy or positive depictions of fatherhood. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. This is true. Um, yes. Or indeed of marriage. Um, yes. And it's very interesting, by the way, this is one of the least popular aspects of the abolition of man. It's very interesting how Lewis talks about contraception. Yes. Uh, mm. A moral change which he saw happening in the course of his own life. Um, until 1930, all Protestant churches were against contraception. And then his own Anglican church began to revise that ethic and opened the door to contraception in a way which was novel. And I think Lewis himself had strong doubts about the the, uh, the validity of that change, that, that this was not a, a, a true development of, of ethical understanding. It was a distortion. Mm. And that's why in that hideous strength, of course, Mark and Jane Studdock, the, the protagonists, they have a contracepted marriage and the, and the yes. novel ends with a grand lovemaking feast. Yes. Which the heir, the true pen, pen dragon is going to be conceived. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on in the abolition of man. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> some of which uh, law-abiding Christians would begin to feel discomforted by, um, I, I mm. suspect. Mm. Um, so um, I think we, we need to be aware that Lewis is talking about a tendency to sin, which is in all of us. And it's not just those terrible people over there who are wanting to manipulate others. Insofar as we suppress our knowledge of the good and sin in particular ways, we are taking precisely the same step. But that's to put it in theological and spiritual religious terms. And of course, in the abolition of man, Lewis is only working in philosophical terms. Right. But it, it's all the same thing, fundamentally. Mm. Mm. Yes. And by the way, you know, to go back to the Tao, um, you know, the Tao can be quite properly translated, I believe, as the way. And indeed, Lewis gives the second chapter of the Abolition of Man the title, the way. Right. Um, but it's interesting how, you know, Lewis, with his um, his canny rhetorical gifts, is sort of slipping under the radar, as it were, a, a, another term for Christianity. Because, of course, in the act yes. of also, the, the the early Christians are the followers of the way, and right. of course Jesus himself in John's Gospel says, "I am the way, the way, right, in the life." And in one of Lewis's letters, he he says that if he, if he were writing from a purely theological point of view, he 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 might well argue that the Tao is the Word, capital W, uh, theologically right. considered or philosophically considered, depending on you know which angle you're coming at it from. Um, 
So it, the, the strategy Lewis is using in the abolition of man is philosophical and intellectual, but, but the same set of arguments could really be couched in purely theological terms if he were writing for a specifically theological audience, but he's not. Right. Um, that, that's one of the reasons why he, you know, in the abolition man has achieved such wide, uh, wide readership and, and so many different mm. categories of person admire this book. Um, Christians of all stripes, uh, evangelicals, Catholics, and everyone in between, um, but also atheists. We, we have in Britain currently a, a quite prominent Br British atheist philosopher called John Gray, and he recently gave a whole BBC radio broadcast devoted to the abolition of man, in which he said that, that he regarded it as prescient, prophetic, and as relevant now as it was when it first came out, if not more so. And he's an atheist. Mm. But he's an atheist of goodwill. That is to say, he's an atheist who believes in the, in the objectivity of value. And therefore, he sees the value of what Lewis is trying to, de to defend. <clears throat> mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, his methodology for going about uh, penning this particular work, what you said, it reveals a lot about Lewis the man. And I think that's right. Uh, Lewis was very concerned to not sort of be pigeonholed into I'm a Christian apologist, right? I think so many of the modern day sort of courses on apologetics, uh, young men go into looking for the professor to hand them the hatchet upon which they will chop down the tree mm -hmm. of, you know, moder uh, modern day skepticism or whatever. Uh, whereas the methodology of Lewis was more like, let me let me slip the scabbard in between the fine little break in the armor and hit the hit the artery in the heart in the perfect way. So that way they're going to bleed out and, and, and that idea will die. Um, and he does it through uh, he does it by like cloaking himself as not purely Christian. Um, this isn't something about the abolition of man, but it is. A, I was just having this conversation this past Sunday with two people uh, in a church that I was visiting uh, about the practice of apologetics, and you're a professor of apologetics, so this seems very apropos. Do you think that Lewis's method, his method towards um, speaking, well, both prophetically, but also to the people of his time, how he tried to disarm the critics by not painting himself as a purely religious figure, but pointing to things that we all just swim in. That's the Tao. I think he, you know, he, he's just saying, listen, it doesn't matter whether you affirm this or not. This is just the way that you operate. <clears throat> but his method of doing that in, tr in trying to pull people to see objective value, not from a purely Christian perspective, uh, but from a sort of meta-narrative archetypal structure of reality that's embedded in stories and myths and nature herself. Is this something that has um, largely been lost in contemporary apologetics? And if it has, is it something that's worthy of rediscovering? Hmm. Well, it's certainly worthy of rediscovery. Um, to the extent to which it has been lost um that's that's a whole other topic um 
and that takes us somewhat away from the abolition of man. So right. let, let's let's bracket that if you don't mind. But sure. But the, but the question of should it be rediscovered or should it be uh, engaged in as a apologetic strategy? Absolutely, yes, um, because it's 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 foundational. Um, you know, Christians want to preach the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of mankind, but who is he saving if, if not people who are morally corrupted? And you can only acknowledge yourself to be morally corrupted if you acknowledge the existence of the objectivity of value which you have offended or fallen short of in some fashion or other. So as Lewis you know, points out in Mere Christianity and his more explicitly Christian works, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ begins with the bad news of our sin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and you can only acknowledge yourself to be sinful if you acknowledge there to be an objective moral framework which, which you are not living up to. Um, so it's absolutely foundational to, to any kind of apologetic, let alone any evangelism, um, that the objectivity of value be defended and, and be explained. Um, you know, it's 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 St. Paul all over again, isn't it, in his letter to the Romans, where he's, he's talking about how, um, I happen to have the letter to the Romans open in front of me, um, how what, what can be known about God is plain to them, that is to say, those outside the law, um, Ever since their creation of the world, God's invisible nature, his eternal power and deity have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. That's in chapter one. And then in chapter two, the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires and are therefore a law unto themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts while their, mm. while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. Um, so St. Paul himself is, is taking this, uh, this idea of natural theology, of conscience, of common grace as a, you know, as a baseline only above which can, can the, the, uh, the structure of a, of a full apologetic mm. and evangelistic presentation be constructed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's so foundational, this book, you, you can see why it has 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 won a, a secure place as a classic because there are not many books which as it were go go to the i, I know joseph you'll like this phrase go ad fontes <laughs> go to the fountain of ethical consideration everybody just sort of presupposes it as of course you naturally do for something that is presupposed. Right. but defending that the, the premise of the objectivity of value is not often done and this is why i think it this has has acquired such a a solid place in lewis's repertoire um that he, he he's bothering to do something which which is so obvious in one sense that mm. nobody would think it would be worth doing <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's worth doing for all sorts of reasons mm. Mm. In the uh, and maybe this is a good uh, uh, sort of final segue as as we wind down here. But one of the things you say in your your guide, 
before you get into the commentary section is there's a word that uh, shows up and there's many good comments you make in here, but there's a word that shows up very rarely in the text, but what you argue uh, is a big idea behind the text and that is the word participation. Uh, yeah. And I'm, uh, I'd be curious if you could tell the listeners, uh, you know, they want to go to the text. What is it that the theme of participation does uh, in the abolition of man? Because it's it's sort of implicit throughout as kind of a category for Lewis. And I thought that was a really interesting comment. So I wonder if you could, uh, it might be a good uh, final, final, final uh, thing to offer the those to, to get your book and to reread Lewis. Yeah, well, participation is participation in the in the Tao. Participation in this moral ecology is is that which makes us human. It is a sine qua non of of humanity. Mm. Lewis is really just attempting to define what it means to be human. Obviously, he would like ultimately people to be not just human, but Christian as well as human, mm. yeah. but you can only be a Christian human being if you're first a human being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as it were, let's sit down and decide what it is to be human from a from an ethical point of view, and it is this involvement in this engagement with uh, this inhalation of the ethical atmosphere or ethical ecology, which not only surrounds us externally but which we actually breathe in. Mm. And, and so uh, the, 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 this is why I like to use the, the image of oxygen or atmosphere, that that, that is, it is very participative kind of metaphor, that moral objectivity is not just something out there, which we have to discern and that we can read off like a railway timetable or the periodic table of elements. It's not that simple. It's organic it's holistic it gets inside us we can breathe it in yes. we have to take it into ourselves so that it impresses our very bodies and you know uh we've already talked about the chest yes it's interesting how, how, how that is not just a philosophical model it also seems to carry over into into a certain understanding of of man physiologically considered and you see this actually in the narnia chronicles where Peter Pevensey, you know, King Peter, High King Peter, yeah. um, grows up, we're told, in the Lion in the Wardrobe, to become a tall and deep-chested man. Mm. Whereas Shift, the ape, the antichrist-like ape in the final comedy, the last battle, he, he tells us that apes always have weak chests. Mm. And so there's something actually uh, physical or, or that could be manifested physically in a, in a well-ordered moral system. Um, you were talking, Dale, about you know your your school's ethos of of training the loves, the ordo amoris, as Saint Augustine calls it, um, or you know as as Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics. Yes. Aristotle says that the aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. Um, in taking on these appropriate loves and and disapprovals too um we we train our bodies as well as our souls actually 
Um, you know, you can see this at a very rough and ready level, of course, can't you, in, in people who abuse alcohol or drugs. Um, it's not just a moral abuse in their spirit or their soul. It begins to have effects upon their physique, mm. upon their complexion, upon their whole body. Um, because morality is, is not just something spiritual. It's something much more tangible, much more palpable than that. And that's why participation, uh, breathing it in, swimming in it, all these images of involvement, I think are, are much better ways of talking about what Lewis is getting at. It's interesting he uses the language, I'll just uh, say this last thing, Dale, but uh, it sort of pulls together a couple of themes. Uh, those who understand the spirit of the Tao uh, and who have been led, and this is a fascinating phrase to use in a secular context, and who have been led by that spirit <laughs> uh, can modify it in directions which that spirit itself demands. Uh, and it's interesting to think of um, uh, uh Lewis would undoubtedly be, and maybe I'm, I'm speculating here, but undoubtedly I would think be aware of the, uh, the, the, the metaphor of spirit is also a metaphor of breath. And it's interesting to think of the role of the chest as sort of participating, breathing it in. Breathing in the Tao is to sort of breathe in its spirit, perhaps. That's a very you know, ancient metaphor. Uh, uh, but And that is actually what enables you to, to shift, if it needs any tweaks, uh, by that spirit. You're actually able to tweak it according to itself, in a sense, its own according to its own demands. That's another interesting comment. It's not just a free-for-all, maybe it needs a tweak. It needs to be tweaked, if it needs to be tweaked. And that's a very interesting comment as well. Go ahead, Dale. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't. Uh, yeah, you mentioned spirit, but maybe uh, there's so much to talk about, Doctor. Yeah, I know. We can. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hard to leave it off. It's hard to close the conversation down because we really could go for another hour. Um, but Joseph and I were talking about. Um, because Lewis does use the word spirit throughout the spirit of the Tao. And it, and when Joe began talking earlier about sort of tweaking the Tao within the Tao to sort of uh, contextualize the Tao's uh, moral obligations in new uh, epochs of God's um, providence, it nevertheless is tethered to an objective value system. Yeah. Um, but it's more along the lines of uh, keeping the spirit of the Tao rather than the letter of the Tao. Mm. So the letter of the Tao might be such and such in the 16th, 17th and 18th century. Uh, and then, you know, uh, mobilization happens. You've, you, you've got uh, pluralism and uh, the rise of sort of nihilism and secularism. And you have all these humans smashing into one another uh, over the globe and ideas conflicting. Um, and uh, I think that what Lewis is saying is the moment that you step outside of the spirit of the Tao, which is a sort of a priori commitment to that thing, which just becomes natural to you when you look at the world, um, that's when you become less of a human. But I, I do wonder this. This is the whole this is one of my because I've been asked this and maybe we'll close it off with this question uh, because I have the best questions and Joe just sort of. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> right. Save the best uh, for last. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how does one, like, what does it actually look like 
to become less of a human or to not be a human. So Tolkien got at it with the orcs, right? Um, but what is it actually, what, what, is the, what is the tangible manifestation of something that's less than human, but looks like a human by all physical appearances? What is that, what does that even sort of translate into? So when, when, when Lewis says we're abolishing what it means to be a man, and if you, take to, if you step outside of the Tao, then you're not a human anymore. What does that person look like? Uh, not, not physically, but what is it that they're sort of, um, is it just an idea? Is it a way to think about reality? Do we look at those people? Because I do wonder if that language can be co-opted for nefarious purposes to sort of um, paint their political opponents in ways that would uh, justify abusing them uh, because these are no longer humans, they're just animals. Yeah. And we Abortion providers are no longer human, so yeah. So kill them because yeah. they're not doing the right thing. Um, how does this cash out in real practical modern ways that we can say, okay, yes, they are stepping out, they're, they're at least attempting to step outside of the Tao, but how do I, like, what does that mean actually? Mm. Well, uh, you're asking philosophically, not physiologically, but before yes. we get into the philosophical, I, I, I mind, I mind, I'm reminded of, of, of how two characters in that hideous strength are described, two of the chief villains, uh, Wither and, Nice, uh, and, and Frost, who are the, mm. the, the, the head honchos of the nice. Um, and it's interesting how they are described in so, sort of equal and opposite terms. Um, They've, all, they've both been involved in the same process whereby all specifically human reactions have been killed in them. Mm. But the process has, and I quote here, it, the process has condensed and sharpened Frost into the hard, bright little needle that he now was, while it has distended and dissipated Wither into a shapeless ruin. Mm. And I, I describe those descriptions as, as what you might call a, a centripetal and centrifugal subjectivisms that you can collapse into yourself and become incredibly um, e egoistic um, if you're a subjectivist or you can as it were just collapse outward and you know like a handful of dust scattered across the universe you, yeah you become airy-fairy wishy-washy um, and either extreme is an error. Um, and I think, you know, if we, if we look around our culture, and indeed, if we look inside our own hearts, we can see the extreme to which some people are tempted. Um, I myself, I think, have a tendency in the frost direction. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm one of those who, who clamps down, who, who, who clinches the teeth and, and other parts of the body in an unhealthy kind of tension yeah. and kind of uh, frigidity or rigidity. Um, whereas you see other people who, who just, you know, easy come, easy go, happy go, lucky types who in one sense are more relaxed, but in another sense have no borders to their personality. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so when it comes to your larger question about, well, what was your larger question? <laughs> well, no, I think you're just, you're getting yeah. at it precisely is, is what does it look like to become sort of not human anymore when we, yeah. when we do descend into, when, when, when man is abolished, when the abolition of man has come to fruition, what does it look like? And I think you're doing a perfect job of explaining that yeah. through hideous strength and your personal experience. And let me just say, uh, before um, you finish, that uh, what you're explaining with your your temperance seems to be sort of like close in like a rigidity. Yeah. And then the, you have the people that are just dust in the wind and there are no borders. That is a perfect way to describe Joseph Minnick and Dale Stenberg, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, so yes, uh, brother, yeah. this is a this is a yeah. trinity of conversation uh, of, that of is error unified. and, and carnage, uh, apart yes. from the grace of the Lord. Yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> yes. So that was really it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. But um, to go back to your point about um, those who try to step outside the Tao. Yeah, I mean, Lewis, not exactly quotes, but he's alluding to Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton talked about how uh, the virtues have gone mad um, mm. in a subjectivist culture that people seize upon one particular aspect of morality and they expand it to madness, yes. swollen, swollen to madness in isolation from every other value. Yeah. And so one way, and so I think this was your the other element of your question, Dale. Um, what's a practical way of, of of pushing back against this tendency? Um, well, it's just always to, as it were, throw your weight on the other side of the boat to try to equal things out. If if you find yourself becoming out of kilter, um, try to do the opposite thing of of the thing that you naturally find yourself inclined towards. Because you know, as as Lewis likes to point out in Screwtape and elsewhere, the devil loves to put errors into the world in pairs, so that mm. by avoiding this error, you're dragged almost unwittingly, unnoticingly into this error. It's, mm. it's, the, it's the technique of divide and rule. This is polarization. Mm. Uh, it's a classic strategy in warfare. Uh, and so in our own lives, um, we, we can hopefully become aware of of our natural temperamental tendency in a certain direction and, and take steps to correct it. And in, in engaging with the larger culture, we can say, you know, and Lewis himself says this in The Abolition of Man, um, that, you know, if, if for instance, I'm not getting the wording exactly right, but if, if uh, scientific honesty is a value, so is conjugal fidelity. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And we, you know, uh, not all of us who are, you know, modern day scientific kinds of people would see any kind of um, correlation. Yeah. Honesty about your scientific data and being true to your promises to your spouse. Mm. But it's a continuum. Right. And right. You, you can't have one without the other, ultimately. Right. Yes. Well, brother, thank you very much. Dr. Ward, your, your work is uh, continuing to get better as you age, brother. So we, we're, 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 look at, we're, look, we're looking forward to your next project. And if you have any little hints that you want to throw out on anything you're working on, this is where all the little good morsels could uh, simmer in the conscience of the listeners. If not, no worries at all. Um, but I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. We so I better not go there. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Thank you for your time. Yes, uh, thank you. Yes, it was a great book. Pick it up after humanity. I always take the du the dust jacket off because I like the uh, oh, pure. Yeah. Yes, there we go. Yes. Um, pick it up. We will have a link for everyone to buy it. Uh, Dr. Ward um, has also written Planet Narnia, uh, which was a, a, a life altering book for me. Pick that up if you haven't yet. Uh, you can always head over to davininstitute.org to find all of uh, the information about what uh, we're doing with Davenin Institute. Head over to the Davenin Institute YouTube page. You can find the rest of our uh, podcast there and you can go over to iTunes or any of your podcast catchers and check out the previous episodes, including the one we did with Dr. Ward on Planet Narnia. But uh, Dr. Ward, thank you, brother. Appreciate your time. Yes. Joe, love you. Love you too, man. And we will see you all next time. Mm -hmm. See you next time. See you. Bye.